Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are spiritually prepared to study the Word this evening. Scripture says that if we are out of fellowship, that uh, God the Holy Spirit is not working in our life in terms of our spiritual growth, spiritual development, and so we need to be in fellowship. And that occurs when we confess our sins to Him, to God the Father, which simply means to admit or acknowledge them to Him, and at that instant, We are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening. We're thankful for your word that was provided for us down through the ages under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit and that we can have confidence that all that we have is accurate, it has been given and preserved down through the centuries. And, Father, we can also be confident that this is the information that you have for us, and as we understand the sufficiency of Scripture, that you have recorded these things for us, for our benefit, that all, because all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that each of us may be thoroughly equipped ready for every good work. So, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that we might be able to focus and that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we can come to understand uh, your word and see how these things apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In Acts 17, we are looking at at Paul's encounter with the Athenian uh, philosophers and the Athenian agnostics and skeptics. Last time I started off, and I'll start off the same way, just reminding you of some basic principles that we learned from Romans 1, um, 18 to 23. Romans 1, 18 to 23. When we look at that, that section of Scripture, there are certain conclusions that we take from that that we should understand when we are on the verge of talking to somebody uh, who's not a believer and somebody who is operating on human viewpoint. So maybe perhaps even somebody claims to be agnostic, somebody claims to be atheist. First thing is that based on what Paul teaches in Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 18, that everybody's religious. Everybody knows, that is, in the sense that everybody knows that God exists, number one. And second, because everybody who uh, either is positive towards God or they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And everyone knows that God exists. So they're either seeking God truly or they are substituting something else in the place of the worship of God. 
Second, we learn that all men are in rebellion against God, against the creator God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of sin. And therefore, they will, the default position of the human soul is to develop a substitute God. So they are in violation of God's standard. Third thing we see is that God created all men with this internal knowledge of his existence and his external witness within creation is sufficient for humanity to know that God exists. Everyone knows that God exists. So in a sense, whenever you're talking to somebody who claims to not believe in Christianity, not believe in the God of the Bible, they're basically in self-deception. They're lying to themselves. Now, they may have buried this under a 100 tons of rubble in their mind so that they don't even know that, that their knowledge of God exists anymore, but we know that it is that it does, and God the Holy Spirit is sort of a secret agent who is covertly working to uncover that knowledge and will use what we say in whatever way uh, he can to expose that, and so then you can have one of two reactions. One is uh, a reaction of uh, enthusiasm, uh, a, a desire to know more. The other is tremendous anger and hostility. I think many of you, and I know I have certainly, experienced both. Fourth, we learned that the ultimate issue in life then, in terms of understanding God and the existence of God, isn't based on intellect. It's not an issue of education, IQ, experience, but it is a moral decision to either accept or reject the knowledge of God that is evident to us, evident within us. And so it's, it, it doesn't matter how much more evidence somebody has. They already have sufficient evidence. Remember I pointed out that in the story about Lazarus, the beggar who died and went to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man who died and went to torments, that when the rich man realizes the consequences of his unbelief, he begs Abraham to let Lazarus go back uh, to earth alive to warn his brothers so that his brothers will turn in belief to God. And Abraham's response was, if they don't believe uh, Moses and the prophets, then they're not going to believe a man who was raised from the dead. Now, isn't that an interesting... I want you to remember that thought because he is saying that they won't believe a man who's raised from the dead. Now, later on, of course, we have the episode of another Lazarus who was raised from the dead. But why was Lazarus raised from the dead? Was Lazarus raised from the dead to convince people of the truth of Scripture? Or was Lazarus raised from the dead as one of the greatest signs that Jesus performed, aside from his own resurrection, to validate his own claims to be the Messiah. And there's a difference there. See, sometimes we think that, oh, if people would just see Jesus perform miracles, if, they would ju- if, if, if Jesus could just walk amongst us, people would respond. No, they wouldn't. That's the implication of that passage. The Word of God contains a self-authenticating uh, authority. It, it, it's, and that's really not a circular argument that we know the Bible is true because the Bible claims to be true. If the Bible is true, and that's actually a first-class condition, if and it is, 
But if the Bible claims to be true, then the God of the Bible has the kind of authority that means that when he speaks, everybody listens. Because they know when, when God speaks, they, it reverberates through their mind. They know that's God. They don't have to have any proof. Just like when you were a little kid and you heard your, your, your father's voice or your mother's voice and they were about to discipline you, you knew, you, you knew from the tone of voice, you knew what was going on. And that's the way it is with the Word of God. It contains the authority of God, and God is in it, and His witness is in it, and it is evident to those who hear it. Now, they may reject it, and sometimes in the process of witnessing to people, we have to talk to them conversationally. We don't just hit them over the head with the... uh, Uh, beat them over the head with the Bible or shoot them with the canon of Scripture or do a little drive-by evangelism. We talk to them, as we'll see in our passage. Uh, Verse 5, I mean, fifth point, is that there are some people who've already understood (coughs) the Creator God. They're they're already positive. They, they, They believe certain things to a certain point, but they haven't gotten to the point where they understand or believe the gospel. So when you witness to somebody like that, you're at a different starting point than if you're witnessing to somebody who is just a pure pagan and has no frame of reference whatsoever for understanding Christianity or the Bible. So the question that we're looking at, and we looked at Acts 14, and now we're in Acts 17, is what do we learn in these two episodes where the Apostle Paul is speaking to a purely pagan audience? Where's the common ground? Is it in reason, experience, or intuition, or is it in Scripture? And what I'm showing you is it's in Scripture. Now, and a lot of what I'm saying, may you may not fully grasp or you may not understand everything, and in some ways I'm going into some areas of philosophy and logic, and so it may go over your head. That's fine. The bottom line that, you, that we all need to learn is that the Word of God is the Word of God, and so we don't want to compromise that. And the Word of God, because we know it's the Word of God, the Creator God of the universe, is going to be used by God to open up people's minds to the truth, and they're either going to accept it or reject it. Now, that doesn't excuse us from not being able to present the gospel or answer questions to the best of our ability, but it means that it's to the best of your ability, not the best of my ability, not the best of... Charlie Kluss' ability, not the best of, you know, somebody else's ability, but to the best of your ability. So that if if you're in a situation and people are asking questions and you don't know the answers, it's fine to say, I don't know the answers. Let me uh, let me find out. It's a, that process of learning. You're going to learn as much as as maybe they will. And this is what happens when Paul went to these two places, Acts 14 in, in Lystra and Acts 17 in Athens. I also went over some things last time in terms of Greek culture and their belief about God and and existence. And this is the big word, is the word being, which comes over into English as existence. And we believe there is created existence, which is, and, and then we believe there is the existence of the creator. And his existence is self-existence. He's, he doesn't, uh, he has no beginning, he has no end, he, he has a different 
kind of existence than we have. But in pagan thought, and pagan thought relates to any type of thinking that is not influenced by the Bible. And so that would mean that to some degree, and there's some debate even among scholars as to whether or not you'd classify Islam as pagan. I would classify it as pagan. Uh, But Judaism is not pagan, and uh, Christianity, of course, is not. So within this, you have, as I've identified in this uh, triangle, and this would include New Age pantheism, you know, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, 80% of what comes out of Hollywood, the Star Wars trilogy, Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek, all of those are, are all view reality this way. It's just more, more uh, sophisticated with science fiction uh, and other things like that, other things from science added in to kind of get, to give it a, to wrap it up in the emperor's new clothes. But remember, human viewpoint and human good is nothing more in the sight of God than, than filthy rags. Paul calls it scubala, which is another word for manure. So if we use the word scubala and we think about this, all of this is simply gilding scubala. You can start using the word GS instead of another acronym perhaps. So that's what this is. It, it is they've gilded all this scubala. They've made it look good. But once you kind of take off the veneer, then it's just as rotten and filthy on the inside. So they have this chain going from God down to Rockstar. Everything's in the same scale of being. This is Aristotle's pre-Darwinist view of the same thing. Except when the difference is that in Darwinism, it starts at the bottom and goes up, and in, with the, the Greek thought, it started at the top and went down. That's the only difference. So you have this scale of being. So they're going to interpret, whenever you talk about God, they interpret God within this framework. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a double envelopment. Human viewpoint and pagan thought is like a double envelopment, like the, like the horns of the bull. If any of you have ever watched um, uh, or studied any about the, uh, uh, the Zulu war, Wars, and the Battle of Islan Wanda and uh, Rourke's Drift and studied about that or seen the specials they had on PBS a while back on, uh, on uh, Shaka Zulu. They had a tactic, and it was like the head of a bull, and you had your main force, which was your more experienced warriors in the front, and then your youthful warriors came out like two, two horns coming out from the head of the bull, and they would come forward and they would meet the enemy head on, and then the horns would come in from each side and envelop the enemy. And this is a classic maneuver, a pincher movement or double envelopment movement, which they carry to a, to a tremendous art. But that is the standard operating procedure of all human viewpoint. It just wants to envelop anything that you say that's related to divine viewpoint, and it's going to absorb it, kill it, absorb it and uh, give new meaning to it. So that's why it's important when, when Paul starts in this discussion with, with the Athenians, just as he did with the, 
uh, those in Lystra, is he makes sure his starting point is God and he defines God. He's not just going to be uh, happy with somebody, you believe in God? I believe in God. Oh, great, we believe in the same God. let's, Let's define that God a little more. So as I pointed out last time, he starts off by focusing on God and his emphasis is on God as the as the creator God. When we come to the first verse I looked at last time, in verse 16, while Paul waited for them at Athens, while Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy to uh, join him down in, uh, uh, down in Athens, he begins to walk around the city and see the sights, and he sees all the idols in all the temples. And there are idols and temples everywhere. And that's just a picture of one of them. I believe that's the temple to, to Zeus. And so he, his, it, verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. This is a form of righteous indignation. Actually, I didn't point it out last time, but the word that's translated provoked there is a Greek word that is, the verb is paroxuno. And paroxuno means to be irritated, to be provoked to anger. It's related to the noun um, paroxysmos, which comes over into English as paroxysm, which has to do, and the, the Greek word has to do with a sharp disagreement or an emotional incitement. So, so as, as Paul walked from temple to temple and idol to idol, he was just getting more and more irritated and wanted to speak the truth. So he goes into the synagogue, always Jew first and then the Greek. Now, why was that? Remember, we're still in a transition period between the age of Israel or the beginning of the church age, but Israel's still in the land, and they haven't come under the fifth cycle of discipline at uh, uh, in AD 70 yet, and so there is still the emphasis on Jew first and then the Gentiles. So he goes in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace, and he is reasoning in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present, just anyone who was there. Now, the word that is translated uh, reasoning here is also used up in verse 2 of this chapter, and that's when they were in uh, Thessalonica. And there we read, then Paul, as his custom was, went uh, into them and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from Scripture. Now, the word from Scripture, this word translated reason, reasoning is dialegomai, dialegomai, which is related to uh, dialegismas, which has to do with, in this context, and the, the other word has to do with, uh, uh, the other form we ran into in Romans 1, 16, and 17 has to do with the way we think, the way we talk to ourselves mentally, the way we reason. And this uh, this word has to do with talking to someone, discussing things with someone, conversing with someone. So Paul is not just coming in again and dumping a load on the Jews in the synagogue. He is presenting a case. He is interacting with them. He's getting questions, and he's answering those questions so that he's not just... And, and we see this even in... Um, uh, with, for, for example, in, in, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he's answering their questions. 
And in fact, I, I've, I've been working on a, uh, a study in 1 Corinthians 15 dealing with resurrection, and it, he's just put out because he's going to answer two questions that he thinks are just foolish questions, but he answers them. So he, he recognizes uh, the legitimacy of helping people come to a clearer understanding of what it is that he is presenting. So in uh, Acts uh, 17.2, he reasons with them in Scripture, and that's further defined in verse 3 by the terms explaining and demonstrating. And the word explaining is the Greek word dianoigo, which means to open something up to people. And it has the idea sometimes of interpreting something to them, but he is, he is helping to disclose what God has revealed and to make it clear. And the next word that is used explaining and demonstrating is a Greek word partithemi, meaning to set something before someone in teaching. Again, you have exposition. So that's his emphasis is opening up the Scripture and teaching. And so that's what he's doing uh, in Athens. He's opening things, uh, opening up the Scripture to anyone who happens to be present. Well, what happens in the next verse is we see that the, uh, these philosophers here, that there's this uh, man down in the marketplace in the Agora who's teaching some rather strange ideas, and they can't get a mental grip on these ideas because the idea of physical bodily resurrection, that somebody would conquer death and would no longer be mortal but immortal, is just beyond their, their, their comprehension. It doesn't fit with their whole philosophy of history and life and creation. This just can't happen. And so Paul talks about it, and they think they're just confused. Now, it's odd to run into that today because we live in Western civilization where physical bodily resurrection at least is understood in some sense, and people uh, are, are somewhat familiar with it, maybe a little, maybe a lot, but it's not like going being dropped into the middle of uh, someplace back in the uh, small village in China somewhere where nobody's ever heard anything about Christianity. It would be very, very different. So the Epicureans and the Stoics come out conversing with him and see what they're saying is, what does this idle, idle babbler have to say? And he's just, he's a, he's a peddler of ideas is what they call him, a, a spermagolos, a scrap monger, an idea monger, a scavenger of ideas. And they think he's proclaiming strange deities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And this word preaching, I'm really focusing on this as I go through Acts, because the normal word for preaching is that, that we think of or should think of for preaching is the Greek verb keruso, which has to do with a herald going out from the government uh, making an announcement. Uh, they didn't have, uh, you know, flash uh, media at that time. They didn't have uh, Facebook and Twitter and all of these other things to uh, alert everybody to things. So they would send out a, a uh, Kerux, a herald, to make these announcements. And he would just go through the streets making these announcements. He wasn't to stop, answer questions, dialogue, or anything. He just makes these announcements as he goes through. That's not the word that's used here. Most of the time in Acts, I'm discovering that the word that's translating preaching comes from the Greek word evangelizo, which is the verb for to proclaim the gospel. He's evangelizing through Jesus and the resurrection. The other thing I'm observing as we're going through Acts, and we'll spend more time on this as we go through Acts, is that every time the gospel's presented, the focus is on the resurrection. Why? 
Now, we're going to learn that in this particular passage. Why is the resurrection presented? It's not presented because the resurrection is, is related specifically to the payment of sin, but resurrection connects with something vital about who Jesus is and the validation of what he did on the cross, and it's connected to his ascension to heaven. That's what we saw in our study in Acts chapter 2. So he's dealing with the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Stoics are pantheists and monists. They view reality as one. The Epicureans are the atheist materialists of the time. And so he's his content doesn't fit uh, their content. So they want to know more about it, so they haul him up to the place where they would uh, get involved in these philosophical debates up at Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And so they comes up to Mars Hill and give him an opportunity to speak. They want to hear all that he has to say. And we began to look at this last time, and I pointed out that as he begins, he points out that they are religious. Now, they may not have quite understood that or accepted that, but we know from Romans 1 what Paul is saying is that you already know that the God who exists, that's the God I'm going to tell you about. And he saw, he has seen this one idol that they threw out there just to make sure they covered all their bases, an idol that they said was to an unknown God. And so Paul is going to use that at, to pull them towards the God that he's going to tell them about. Now, the, the gods that they had were, were finite gods, but Paul is going to use this as a segue to teach them about the true God because they had no concept of a creator God as the Bible presents, a creator God who's totally distinct, totally other, uh, totally set apart from his creation. So that's what we focused on last time, was just looking at the beginning of this, where Paul is teaching about God, correcting their notion of God, that God is the creator God. He's the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and that he does not dwell uh, dwell in temples uh, made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So he, again, is, is putting the focus on the fact that it is God who gives us everything, everything. The air you breathe, the food you eat every day, uh, you may have a job and go work hard, but God is the one who gives you the job. God is the one who uh, allows you to live. And this comes right out of the Old Testament. Even though he's not quoting Scripture per se, everything that he is saying is right out of the Old Testament. So uh, just, for example, Isaiah 42.5 says, Thus says uh, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. So it is God who is the source of Life, and that's the God that He is proclaiming uh, to them. And this is very different from the God that they think of, which is a God who is dependent on man. And here He presents, as I pointed out last time in Psalm 50, uh, 9 through 12, it is God who owns everything, and that God is separate. He doesn't dwell on earth, as Solomon recognized when he dedicated the temple, that God doesn't dwell in a temple on the earth because the heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him. Nevertheless, God authorized the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that sort of brings us up to date, a few new ideas. 
The second thing that Paul does, starting in verse uh, verse 8, is to point out a different view of man than they held. So first he corrects their view of God, then he corrects their view of man. Because if I'm going to dialogue with an unbeliever and I'm talking to him about God and man and sin and salvation, I need to make sure that he's not taking each of these terms and doing a double envelopment and taking what I'm saying and redefining it within his system. And and uh, and it, it, people do that. I remember uh, some years ago I was uh, in a conversation with a man at a at a party in uh, in Denver, and th- we got involved in a conversation. This was about the time that Jimmy Carter had run for president, and it was uh, Time Magazine had declared it the year of the evangelical, and everybody was talking about what it meant to be born again. And so uh, he knew I was going to seminary at the time, and he said something to me about, well, are, are you, you believe in being born again? I said, definitely, that's what the Bible teaches. He said, yes, I was born again a couple of years ago. I divorced my wife. I got a new job. I <laughs> See, they just take this term, and they reinvent it in terms of their own frame of reference. So we ha- you have to avoid that. Define your terms so Paul's making sure they, they understand Uh, who God is and then who man is. He has declared the reality of God's existence, and now he's going to talk about humanity. So in verse 26 he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now, that probably struck those Epicureans and Stoics just as harshly as it would strike uh, anybody working in any biology department or um, science department or sociology department on the planet today. It didn't like it. It ran against everything. In fact, their view was that the Greeks were higher than everybody else. Everybody else they referred to as barbarians because their language sounded like bar, 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 bar. And so they, they were higher than everybody else. They weren't like everybody else. And here Paul is saying, no, you're just, everybody came from one man. Greeks aren't any better or any worse than Romans, than Phoenicians, than Persians. We're all from one one God. He's the authority over human history. He made all of mankind. And not only that, he determines their appointed times, the rise and the fall of empires and nations. And further, he identifies and sets the boundaries of their habitation. Now, this is a great verse because it emphasizes that God establishes national boundaries. And folks who come along today, there are movements like this for internationalism and people who want countries with no borders and just let everybody run back and forth over everything without any uh, uh, definition of authority fly completely in the face of the fact that God is the one who established national distinctions and national boundaries. So this is a great verse to use. Uh, from a biblical viewpoint on why we need to defend our borders and why a nation should have a a, a policy on immigration so that they can control the application of their legal system within their borders. 
Because if you can't control the application of your legal system within your borders, then you will be, your society will become chaos. And we're, we see evidence of that in many, many places, especially along the border uh, in, in our nation and in many other areas because we've lost control in these areas. Now, this is an Old Testament idea, and it's based on Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 where Moses said, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, that is the inheritance of the nation, it is God who defines their inheritance. Now remember the idea of inheritance, the core idea that we've studied in inheritance is possession. If you inherit something, it's the Old Testament idea isn't so much that inheritance is something you gain when someone dies and it's passed on to you. That's a secondary meaning. The primary meaning of inheritance is a possession. When God gives the land to Israel, he says, this is your inheritance. He means this is your possession that I have given you. So when you do a little simple word substitution here, when the Most High divided their possessions, that's the land allotments, to the nations. So God divides that out. When he separated the sons of Adam, the sons of Adam is just a term for humanity. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So there is a correlation there between this, between Israel, some sort of proportion or ratio between Israel and the Gentiles. We don't know what that is. But it once again, it emphasizes that Israel is at the very core of all of human history. So Paul goes on, now that he's established the fact that there's God is the creator God who created uh, the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, and he has emphasized the fact that God created all of the human race from one man, which completely blows their whole understanding of of. Uh, of humanity and their arrogant pride in, um, in being Greeks, he asserts that God is the sovereign over, over all of mankind. And verse 29, he draws that conclusion. He says, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Wow, that's a real slap in the face. Paul needs to learn how to be a little more politically correct. Because right here, he just comes right out and says, you know, you've made all these beautiful statues of all these gods and goddesses out of silver, gold, and and stone, but we don't have a right to do that. Who are we to think that God can be restricted to this kind of representation? And so, he, see, he is challenging the very foundation of their thinking. He hasn't mentioned Jesus. He hasn't. Now, he, he did earlier, earlier in the dialogue out in the, uh, in the marketplace. He t- had already talked about Jesus and the resurrection. But here, in explaining his ideas in more depth to the Stoics and the Epicureans, he hasn't even gotten to Jesus and the cross yet. He's spending all of his time focusing on their understanding of God. Because if you don't have the right understanding of God, you're not really going to be able to understand who Jesus was and why he did what he did at the cross. And you're not even going to be able to comprehend the resurrection, which is what we see here in this whole whole dialogue. 
So he just challenges the fact that their ultimate idea, their, their, their idea of ultimate reality is completely false, and he has just eradicated their foundation. And then he says, truly, these times of ignorance. Now, they must have just really loved that. Can you imagine being one of these foremost philosophers, professors, you know, two or three PhDs after your name and everything else? And Paul comes along and says, well, basically, you've been ignorant up till now, and God's just overlooked it. You think you were smart. See, that's where we'll see that coming up in Romans, professing to be wise, they become fools. So Paul says, these times of ignorance. See, up to now, you Greeks, you've just been ignorant. You're, you're not, the barbarians aren't barbarian. You're more ignorant or as ignorant as they are. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God is taking a more active role in relation to the Gentile nations, and he commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, the idea that he expresses in 1729 related to idolatry goes back to, once again, to the Old Testament, the Torah. Deuteronomy 4, 19 uh, reads, And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. So the stars, the moon, the sun, this is all heritage for all people that God gave them. You don't worship them. Don't worship what God made. So what Paul says in verse 29 comes right out of the Old Testament, but he's not quoting Scripture to them, but he is accurately presenting what Scripture says. And then he says, but there's a change now, and God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. Now, we've studied the word repent. We studied it Tuesday night the last couple of Tuesday nights in relation to Acts and Peter's command there to the men of, of Israel that they were to repent. We looked at the history of this word as it's used in the New Testament. Just to remind you, and for those of you who weren't here Tuesday night, repent is based on the Greek word metanoeo. Metanoeo means to have a change of mind. Uh, literally, meta sort of means after, noeo from the word for thinking, sort of an afterthought. You rethink something. You change your mind. That's the usage of the term. It's not a term that is parallel to remorse or sorrow or, uh, or feeling sorry for your sins. It doesn't have an emotional connotation at all. There's a different Greek word, metamelomai, which has an emotional uh, idea. Second thing I pointed out about the, the term uh, metanoeo, and sometimes it's used with a different Greek word, epistrepho, which means literally to turn, that these two words uh, relate to an Old Testament word, shuv, which means to turn. It's used in many passages where somebody's going in one direction, they just turn, and they, they're walking to Jerusalem, and they turned and went to Jericho instead, just everyday, everyday language. And so it has to do with, with, with just turning. And so it's used then, if you have been worshiping the idols, that you are to turn and worship God. And so he, uh, Peter uses it in, in, in that sense, coming right out of the Old Testament, where again and again, God challenged the Israelites when they were in rebellion against him and worshiping idols to turn back to him. And the promise in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, is when all of the Jews would turn back to God 
after they were scattered throughout the earth to all the nations, when they turned back to him, then God would restore them from all the lands where he had scattered them, and he would bring them back uh, to the land of, of Israel and reinstate the nation in all of its glory. And as we get into uh, the Gospels, the first message that John the Baptist gave was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus and his, came along and it was the same message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he sent out his disciples, same message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. All that has to be understood within the context of, of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, that when you turn, when you repent, then I'll bring, bring you back and restore the nation to the land. So when we get into Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, uh, and on into Acts, repent almost always, ha- always up to this point has a Jewish focus. But here we see that now it's a shift. It's going to a Gentile audience and that, that the, the gospel is moving out from a Jewish focus to a worldwide focus, which is exactly what what Paul is saying here is there's a change. God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent. That, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a responsibility for them to turn to God uh, in, the, um, in the Old Testament, but it's not in the same way that he is speaking of it uh, right now. So let me see, go to here. So we go to verse 27. So they should seek the Lord. They're to turn to God so they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, uh, though he is not far from each one of us. And here Paul is simply recognizing the fact that God is always exercising the grace initiative to reach out to mankind. God is not sitting up there saying, well, you all need to move towards me first. God is always exercising the initiative, and he always had through, has through human history to make, uh, to make the gospel clear. Now, when we come to this verse, a couple of things that uh, I wanted to point out is that as Paul uh, articulates this principle here that, for, for in, uh, that they should seek the Lord in this verse and in the next verse, he actually alludes to two pagan poets, Epimenides of Crete and Aratus of Cilicia. So he's defined God as a God that is a creator God, a God that the Athenians don't want to accept. And now he says that if you should seek him, you can grope for him and he will be there. He is near. He is not far away. Psalm uh, 74, verse 7, shows again that Paul has, uh, I mean, that God has uh, a frame of reference for, uh, from the Old Testament. Psalm 74, 7 says, They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name uh, to the ground. The recognition of the fact that God is still present and he is still near even though, I mean, in the context of Psalm 74, even though there has been a rejection of him, God is still still present. Then we come to Acts 17.30. He says, truly, uh, let me go to Acts 17, I'm skipping ahead. Here we go. 
in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And here is a statement from Epimenides, the Cretan, from about 600 B.C., where he wrote, They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. Now, Paul quotes them again, very famous quote in Titus, where he, where he quotes them as saying, the Cretans are always liars. Hmm. If somebody's always a liar, can they tell the truth if they say they're lying? If I always lie and I say I'm lying, am I telling the truth or am I lying? It's one of those little conundrums that has been handed down from the ancient world. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But thou art not dead, uh, thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. But see, their idea of having their being in God is within the chain of being. It's not God as the separate, distinct creator God of the heavens and the earth. Uh, another aspect of this is, comes from Aratus, who wrote... Let us begin with Zeus. Never, O men, let us leave him unmentioned. All the ways are full of Zeus and all the marketplaces of human beings. The sea is full of him. So are the harbors. In every way we have all to do with Zeus, for we are truly his offspring. Now, what Paul isn't going over to paganism and trying to argue on the basis of paganism or argue them back to, or argue them to Christianity. What Paul is doing is he's showing that even within the, the history of their thinking, there's always this evidence of God and evidence of truth that just unavoidably pops up in the thinking of the unbeliever. They can't avoid it because they do. we do live and breathe and exist within the creation of the God of the Bible. He is always near. See, People recognize this every now and then. It's not really consistent with their philosophy at times, but they do recognize this. And so he he is going to the, the, these two quotes, and he sort of alludes to that within his statement. Comes back, as we looked at already, uh, we are the offspring of God. He draws this conclusion against idolatry, and he draws this conclusion that now it's time for you to repent. Why? Now we get to the punch in his message. He says in verse 31, Because he has, pointed, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. There's accountability. It's not just random. We don't just live. We don't just, just have this cycle. See, the, the, the Greeks had this view of cyclical history where everything just goes in repeated cycles forever and ever and ever. So he says, but God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. That implies that there is a direction and an end. Now, the Greeks didn't believe there was an end. They believed in the eternality of the universe. Later on, that becomes when, when the um, uh, theologians and philosophers in the Middle Ages rediscover Aristotle uh, this becomes a major debate throughout the Middle Ages, is the universe eternal. So that's what Paul is going against here. There's an, a, a, a day. We're moving in a direction. He has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, the Greek there is the Greek preposition in, E-N, 
which I think should be translated at this point by means of righteousness. What's the basis for God's judgment of mankind? What's the criteria he's going to use? His own righteousness. So what Paul is saying here is not that he will judge the world in righteousness, but he will judge the world by righteousness. Righteousness is the standard that God holds his creatures to. So he will judge the world uh, by means of righteousness by the man. See, that righteousness is in a person. That righteousness was exhibited in the person of Jesus Christ. And because he was perfectly righteous and without sin, he was qualified to go to the cross. So he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. This is the same word we studied. It was translated uh, or, or ordained. Sometimes it's translated foreordained. It's horizo in the Greek, and it simply means God had a plan. It doesn't imply uh, a, 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 some sort of foreordination or predestination soteriologically but it indicates that God had a specific plan set ahead of time and that he has uh, established a purpose for the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he emphasizes his humanity here. He doesn't say by the God-man. He says by the man because it is the fact that Jesus in his humanity passes all of the tests that Adam failed that qualifies him to go to the cross. He maintains his righteousness not by yield not by depending upon his divine attributes to avoid temptation, but by doing it on the basis of the word of God and the spirit of God. He is Jesus in his humanity has to solve the problems and not yield to sin on the basis of only his humanity. If he goes over to his deity, and avoid sin by relying upon his divine righteousness or justice or omniscience or omnipotence, then he's not demonstrating anything for us. And that would fail the test. He has to do it as a man. And so his, his righteousness is established in terms of his, uh, his humanity who God or, and God ordained. And then he says, he has given assurance of this, of what? Of the judgment that's coming. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Why did Jesus raise from the dead? The resurrection is not what provides the basis for justification, but the resurrection is what validates from God the mission that Jesus was sent on was accomplished. And if you don't have that, everything else falls apart. So the res that's why the resurrection is central. Every time we go through Acts, and watch this on Tuesday night, every time we go through Acts, what we're going to see is that in every single gospel presentation, the focus is not on the atonement but on the resurrection. Think about that. We'll have to investigate that more as we go through Acts. What we see is this emphasis on the res resurrection. God has given assurance of what? of the fact that it is by righteousness and by this man whom God ordained that salvation was accomplished. And he did this by raising him from the dead. And as soon as Paul mentions this, they're just like, oh, what's with this guy? Raising somebody from the dead? 
That's never happened. It's never been experienced before that a dead man is going to come back to life. No, that's, that, that doesn't happen. See, they're using their limited experience, which they think is so great because of their high intellect and their Greek culture, to judge something that is w- totally beyond any human experience because of the creator. It all stems from the fact because they have a limited view of God's, because they have a limited view uh, of uh, and a high view of man, rather, a limited view of God and a high view of man that they can't comprehend it. And when he mentions raising from the dead, it's, it's all of a sudden like he starts speaking another language that they didn't understand. And they, they hear him mention it and they mock. And But there's some, there's some that were positive. And they said, we will hear you again on this matter. So the implication is that, that I want you to notice this in terms of evangelism. What, ha- what was the first thing that Paul did? He goes to the synagogues, and he's talking to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And then he went out in the marketplace. He go, he, in, in Thessalonica, he went on three successive Sabbaths to the synagogue. He's not expecting people to respond to the gospel the first or even second time they hear it. He has to explain it. He has to go over it again and again. He, he's answering questions. So he goes out, and, and when he's in Athens, he goes to the synagogues, and then he goes out into the marketplace, and he's dialoguing with people. He's talking to them, and he's explaining the fact that Jesus, who Jesus is, and the resurrection. And then he gets confronted by the Stoics and the Epicureans, and again he goes back, and first he corrects their view of God. He's not afraid to emphasize creation. Now, I know a lot of evangelicals who get, get really squeamish about this. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to get hung up on, on this thing about creation. We just want to focus on the gospel and Jesus on the cross. But what Paul shows us in Acts 14 and Acts 17 is if you don't have a God who creates the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, a God who is the kind of God that Genesis presents, then you can't have the kind of Jesus that the Gospels present. Think about that. If you don't have the kind of God that Moses gives us in Genesis, then you can't have the kind of Jesus that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us in the New Testament. And if your idea of God is some sort of impersonal force out there, then you can't have a concept of sin and you can't have a concept of justice and righteousness wherein you have a substitute who dies and pays the penalty. So you have to have that starting point down. That's, this is another thing that shows how everything in Scripture integrates together. You can't just go in and focus on one thing or one passage and ignore the rest of the Bible. Or you can't. On the other hand, you can't go in and say, well, science has shown us something different about creation. So let's just not say anything about Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, That was a matter of their faith. We know different. We're going to focus on the rest of the Bible. You can't do that. You've cut the foundation out from under everything else that's in the Bible. Everything that is said about Jesus is built on a literal understanding of Genesis 1 to 11. So they can't understand resurrection because they don't have the kind of God in their mind that is the God of life in Genesis 1 to 11. So in the conclusion, we learn that Paul departed from them. And in verse 34, 
We're told, however, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite. That means that he was one of those philosophers who gathered at the Areopagus at Mars Hill to debate the issues of life. And also a woman named Damaris and others with him. Now, Luke doesn't go into a long list, but he gives a couple of major names to show that Paul did have a converts there. Did he, was a church established there? We don't know. There's no evidence in the, in the Scripture that a church was established there like there was in uh, Thessalonica and in Philippi, uh, Philippi and Corinth and other places. But I don't recall um, hearing a lot of, reading a lot about a church in Berea either. Now, the, he praises the Bereans because they searched the Scriptures daily to see that they were, uh, things were so, what he taught was so, but there's no... Uh, there's no group there that he writes letters to later on. We don't read of the organization of the church at, at Berea or the things of that nature. So there are some people, I think, unjustly have said, well, see, Paul went to Athens and he was a failure. He reasoned too well. He was too philosophical. Well, they've missed the whole point. He isn't too philosophical. He never goes outside the framework of Scripture to, to argue his position, but he doesn't have the response at Mars Hill that he did when he was at other places. But remember, he goes to other places where he, he was pretty much rejected when he first went to uh, Derby, And they, they ran him out of town, town, and he goes to Lystra, and, and they stone him, and he has to escape over the wall, and they thought he was dead and things of that nature. So um, Paul is not a failure. He is true to the foundations of the gospel, and he does have a measure of success, a number of people who were converted. Now, in terms of clo closing out this little study, actually the last six or seven lessons have been sort of a, a sub-series sub related to understanding the implications of Romans 1.18 and following. We see that we have to recognize that the world is what, God, what the Bible says it is and what God says it is. And when we talk to people, we need to talk to people in the confidence that that's the way the world is. And also recognizing that at some level they know that. They may have covered it up with a thousand tons of concrete, but it's still there and the Holy Spirit can crack the concrete. And so it's not up to us and never is up to us. It's up to us to be as prepared as we can be, but it's not us to, up, up to us to be as prepared as some other people can be. So it's up to the Holy Spirit ultimately. So let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study these things, think through the examples you've given us in Scripture of how Paul communicated the gospel to pagan unbelievers and to learn some things, some principles there that we can apply in our own conversations with people we know who are uh, far off or some are moving closer to understanding the gospel but just that we may be prepared to uh, explain the truth, to dialogue with unbelievers to the best of our ability that God the Holy Spirit can use us in the process of leading them to uh, the cross and helping them to have a better understanding of the dynamics of Jesus' work on the cross and what is necessary for salvation in simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.